This week we're talking about the adventures of a nature photographer with Art Wolf, and you're listening to the Landscape Photography Podcast. As always, thank you guys so much for tuning in this week. I am so incredibly excited to get to talk with Art Wolf this week. Art has always been one of my inspirations. I think he's been an inspiration for many, many landscape photographers out there. If you're not already familiar with Art Wolf, Art is probably best known for his TV shows, which were Tales by Light, which is currently on Netflix, and Travels to the Edge, which was on PBS. Both excellent shows. He's also done work for National Geographic, and he's written many, many books, which are all excellent as well. Art's work is absolutely amazing. His nature photography, cultural photography, and wildlife photography is some of the best in the world, which is why he is one of the best known names in all of landscape photography. So I was really excited to sit down and talk with him about his new book and a whole bunch of other subjects. So hopefully you enjoy this, sit back, relax, enjoy this week's episode with Art Wolf. So today I'm lucky enough to sit down with Art Wolf. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Art. It's my pleasure, Nick. It's so cool to get to talk to you again. I've been a huge Art Wolf fan forever. I think most nature and landscape photographers have. Um, so it's really cool to get to talk to you about the the book that you have coming out. Tell us a little bit about this Earth is My Witness book. You know, over the years, Nick, I've done a lot of books. And usually they're specific towards wildlife or landscape or in fact cultures this book is a look back over 40 years it's called earth is my witness and it's a compendium of cultures wildlife and landscapes so it's the first book wherever uh, that i've ever been able to combine the three genres that i really love to do when I get sit down to like decide what my portfolio is going to be on my website, like I struggle with that, but I cannot imagine trying to go through the amount of material that you have to go through, you know, to boil it down to your best photos of your career. That had to have been quite the challenge, right? Well, in fact, I wanted to make sure that the publisher didn't look at this book as a retrospective, which implies you're at the end of your life or <laughs> yeah, exactly. end of your career. Because since that book uh, went to press, I have been shooting like a drunken sailor for the last two years. <laughs> There's six new books that I'm working on that are of the same scale as the original Earth is My oh, Witness. Wow. So I, uh, I'm actually more active now and more uh, productive than ever before. So yes, at that time, it was a delightful challenge to look through the archive, um, both digital and analog, mm -hmm. and try to figure out which of the analog would stand up to, to, to today's standards, which has really increased over the last 10 years. Yeah, absolutely. Like as you're looking back at that many photos, how many photos are we even talking about? How many photos does Art Wolf have in his archive? You know, uh, if I knew, that would imply that I had a lot of time on my hands. <laughs> uh, we only speculate because nobody's willing, nor am I, to sit down and count drawer after drawer, page after page of 30 years of shooting slides. I, w I often have said it's a million plus. It could be even more than that. Uh, and then in the age of digital, again, very, very productive for the last 10 years. 
I don't know. You know, I don't count the number of countries I've traveled, the amount of miles I've traveled. Uh, I don't, you know, notch the bedposts, so to speak. Yeah. I don't. It's not what motivates me. And so the number of photos I've taken over the years, it's nothing I would be proud of or ashamed of. I just don't know, nor do I particularly care. Yeah. When you're putting together a book like this, were, were there a bunch of different photos that kind of popped out in your mind as soon as you started thinking about the book, thinking, oh, yeah, that one's got to go in here? And do you have did you already kind of have your favorites picked out in your mind or did you have to start from scratch when you went to back to kind of decide what was going to make it into the book? You know, what was so nice was the publisher uh, allowed a lot of photos. In other words, there's several places where there's six and eight page spreads. Oh, nice. We put a lot of photos in this book. There's nearly 500. And so it wasn't such a painful process to cull 500 favorite photos down. Yeah. The other thing about that is the book wasn't just random photos that were squeezed into a book. It was actually organized along the lines of biomes, which meant Island Ocean would, could be a natural chapter. The Arctic, Antarctic would be a natural chapter. Tropic, subtropical, mountains, deserts, so to speak. So you, it was actually divided up logically along those lines. And then within each chapter, the best ones came forward. Like you mentioned, you know, you're drawing from both the digital era and the analog era. Does that mean that when you're going back to some of those older images, are you going back and reprocessing them at all or kind of looking at them through fresh eyes and, and trying to spice them up or, or doing anything to kind of increase the quality as, as your processing style has changed through the years? Only a photographer would ask that because uh, it's a very astute question. And in fact, it's exactly what happened. There were photos that I had taken on the 1984 Everest expedition that I participated on. And those back in those days, you know, a slide was either right or wrong. And yet they had historical importance. It was the first uh, Western expedition mm. uh, allowed into China. Uh, allowed into Tibet, I should say, by the Chinese government. And so photos that were taking were fairly important. And yet some were underexposed or overexposed, photographing at altitude like from 16,000 to 25,000 feet. Those photos, if they looked underexposed at the time, they just stayed that way. Yeah. And yet in today's world, as you surmised, and I agree, we were able to scan them and open up shadows and take down the highlights and maybe saturate the color a little bit because back in that day, it was all Kodachrome and Kodachrome was fairly um, monochromatic in comparison to what we can do today. And so there was a revitalization, yeah. uh, which is a modern word, uh, but it is applicable for what we did with these images and it breathed life into old docs. Yeah, I prefer to call that digital love. <laughs> there you go. The, the other thing that was really interesting is, you know, looking back over 40 years, I had my favorite photos taken earlier in my career. And then when I put a loop to them in today's world, I would say, oh, my God, they are so soft. Mm -hmm. They were sharp in that era of time. But by comparison to what we're able to do today, they looked fuzzy and out of focus. And so you know, it it was a, a major motivation for me in the three years before the book came out 
to travel around the world, not to copy what I had done, but just put myself in photo rich environments mm -hmm. and almost, well, I would say 75% of the photos in the book had been shot in the previous three years before the book came out. Because you're trying to go back and shoot it with modern technology where you know that you can do better. Well, I didn't want a young punk photographer <laughs> to look at that book and say, oh, my God, this guy is so overrated. So, you know, part of it was my insecurity of looking bad. And so it was a great motivation to go out there and really uh, do a good job. And I think that was a, a large part of, you know, why you excelled so much is that you were one of those that fully embraced the new technology. And I imagine you had to, you were looking around at some of your colleagues that maybe were much slower to embrace the new technology as it came out. And you probably witnessed some of them kind of, you know, become a little bit less uh, relevant, I guess, as well, time let's went just on. say that they would make a great exhibit in the Museum of Natural History. <laughs> exactly. This is what a photographer used to look like. Notice the <laughs> vest. <laughs> uh, I think you're wearing a vest in that photo on uh, Skype right now. Yes, although that that's an NFL <laughs> vest. But yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway, you know, I, 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 when I'm out, I don't think I look like a photographer. I wear a t-shirt and a baseball cap and like everybody else, but yeah, you know, I rarely am decked out in vests and, you know, there is kind of the look and I don't <laughs> think I've got that look. No, no. But, you know, the, the thing that a person will notice is that Art Wolf is always shooting with the, the newest technology. That's been really key to creating the highest quality work as the technology increases. So does the quality of your work. Absolutely. I, I love the technology and when I teach around the country, I'm always singing the praises that we're able to go out mm -hmm. to environments that we've been many, many times before. But with new technology, we might be able to shoot in a new way. And in fact, I think that's the key. And it's kind of like when I talk with my son and he who's only eight and I explain to him like, yeah, I remember what it was like before the Internet. And he just his eyes glaze over and he just doesn't get it. And you can kind of have the same conversation with a lot of newer photographers like, yeah, I I know what it was like to not have instant feedback on my photos. I had to wait, you know, until the photos were processed before I knew if I hit sharpness or or expose the scene properly. Well, that leads into an interesting conversation because historically, if there was a really cool scene, I'm neurotic enough that I would put two or three rolls of film through right. the camera just to ensure that I've got it. And in today's world, looking at the back of the camera, I can say, check and move on. And so consequently, yeah. I'm much more productive because I'm not wasting time shooting ad nauseum mm -hmm. the same subject. Looking back again at Mount Everest expedition in 84, it would be three months before I'd be able oh, to man. review what I sh had shot. That is so hard on your confidence because nowadays you can look at the back of your camera and be like, yep, I'm awesome. I nailed it. And, but, ba <laughs> but back then you have to wait three months before you know if you got anything. And that's that's got to be pretty intimidating. I think that all of that history, though, you know, shooting with. ISOs of 25 and moving up the ranks. And I, uh, there was a time when I thought pushing 100 ISO film to 200 was ridiculous because, <laughs> uh, and it was because the blacks would look opaque and people can't even wrap their brain around that. You know, 
if you're a wildlife photographer, the animal had to be dead before you got it in focus. <laughs> yeah. That's hilarious. It's so true, though. And that brings me to one of the other things that I just wanted to bring up is, you know, watching, I think it was the Tales by Light and and a lot of the other stuff that you've done. You have to be one of the bravest photographers ever, because when you're photographing a landscape, that's one thing. But when you're photographing some of the wildlife that you photograph, you know, you're down in a river with a bunch of grizzly bears and you're, you know, in the jungle with silverback gorillas. That is a whole other level of just brave. Well, you know, there's a lot of people that have gone into mountain gorillas. And when once they're habituated, they're a fairly gentle creature. And, you know, I never visualize actually getting killed by an animal but three weeks ago i was in zimbabwe and we were walking on uh, foot the, almost the entire time in the forest shooting elephants from a ground perspective i'm doing mm. a book on elephants which is a call to action you know it's a book that is uh, highlighting the challenges of keeping elephants from going extinct and yet one mother took exception with me and charged from a long distance away. And I was with a guide and a, a friend of mine. And the only thing, honestly, that saved our lives was a log on the ground that had branches that were spiraling out. And that elephant hit that log with such force, it knocked off a huge chunk of wood that flew over our heads. Oh. But before that log stopped the elephant, it had to have been about six feet away. Now, this is 8,000 pounds of fury coming our way so fast that all we had time to was cower behind the lock. And so over the years, there have been mistakes that I've made and underestimated what would happen. Uh, by and large, the most dangerous thing I do, I believe, is getting in the back of a plane, opening mm -hmm. the door, duct taping myself to whatever I can and flying at a very steep angle over the subject I'm shooting, which I did earlier this year in Chad over a herd of 300 elephants. Jeez. And when, when I'm doing that, I'm really lost in the moment. I'm scared, very scared. I, I <laughs> don't like flying uh, in radical angles, but once I lock onto a subject, it's almost like everything else goes mm -hmm. away. And when I stop shooting, that's what I really start to get nervous. Yeah, that's the danger of a photographer is that you get so wrapped up in looking through the viewfinder and paying attention to composition and stuff. You, you kind of get your blinders on and you forget about your surroundings. I imagine being in a situation with a charging elephant, you realize just how slow you are as a human because, <laughs> uh, you know, you're just in such great danger. We saw probably... 500 elephants in a span of six days and photographed them from a ground perspective. But one out of those 500 just attacked yeah. and made its point. And it happened so fast and it was over before we even really had time to process it. But going to sleep that night, I just was uh, shaking myself uh, awake, constantly reviewing what we had done and where we made a mistake. And it could have just simply been um, boiled down to the fact that this was a elephant that was truly wild, hadn't been around people. And I left the safety of the log to get a better angle. And once my profile stood up and away from the surrounding uh, trees, that's when it got nervous and attacked because it had a baby right next to it. Yeah, that's so crazy. That's <laughs> that's intimidating. 
You know, one of the things that I feel like kind of sets your work apart from a lot of photographers nowadays is that it always seems like you have a purpose behind the work that you're creating. You always have kind of that creating awareness about something. You, you There's always a purpose behind your photography. And maybe you can talk a little bit about that. My staff brought to my attention that I had done my hundredth book about three books ago. And I said a hundred different books. And they were saying, well, yeah, you know, there's children's books, there's foreign editions that got different covers, but all in total, there's a hundred different books. And I think that speaks volumes for the fact that A, I love books and B, I need a project. I need to mm -hmm. be motivated. Otherwise, if I was simply shooting for stock or randomly with no agenda, I don't know that I would muster the interest to get out of bed. So I love a project. I love conceiving of an idea and then executing it and mostly on a world scale. So I'm basically a storyteller that shows the commonality. If it's, if it's a human-centric book, I want to show the commonality of humans. Rather than being divisive, I want to show how we have more in common than not. If it's a book on wildlife, I want to show the inspiration and the awe of what I experience in nature and bring it back to the masses and back to people that may not have the economic or physical uh, means to go and travel. And mm -hmm. so there's always an environmental slant to that kind of a book. If it's a landscape book, I want to show something slightly different than a book I've done before or a book that has been done by my colleagues. And so those are primary drives for me to show something new and maybe in a new way. If I can achieve that or even a little bit of that, then I'm quite happy. Yeah. And I think there's kind of a secondary lesson in there is the fact that you mentioned that that's what keeps you inspired and motivated. And a lot of photographers nowadays, they go out and they, they'll maybe go on a trip and then they come home and then they're like, well, where am I going to go next? And it's kind of like you said, it's not really doing photography with a goal or a purpose or a theme or an idea. And you create all of these projects for yourself that kind of gives you a scope within to work in. And that's where that motivation and, and inspiration is coming from, because you're giving yourself a goal that is beyond just like, well, where can I go next? That's cool. That's, I think, a large part of what keeps you motivated and inspired. I often ask people in my classes, OK, what what do you want to do with the work? Because if, in fact, they're photographers and they are, then you're shooting for the enjoyment of other people. I think that's why cooks cook, dancers dance, writers write. Musicians play music for the entertainment of other people. And so I'm always thinking of my audience and I want to inspire them. I want to uplift them. I want to motivate them. And so I say to my students, is there not a project that you can bring your interest and your drive together and present it to an audience? And it may not be, you know, the uh, Carnegie, Carnegie Hall, but it could be, in fact, an assisted care living center where the people are desperate for something that mm -hmm. uplifts them or a school or uh, a neighborhood community or whatever it may be, but shoot with an agenda and shoot for somebody else. Yeah. And, and, and that goes hand in hand with also uplifting your own self, because when you're using your creative side of your brain, you're naturally inspired and a happier more motivated person. And that I think goes without saying. 
Yeah. The proof is in the pudding. I mean, you've been doing this for a very long time and you are just as inspired and motivated today. As, well, I'm assuming I'm kind of putting words in your mouth, but I'm assuming that you are just as inspired and motivated today as you were, say, 20 years ago. Absolutely. You know, I I'm in two days time. I'm getting on a plane and I'm flying down to Jakarta and then into Sulawesi Island where I've never uh, been before. I'm going to uh, underwater housing and photograph tropical reefs for a book called Wild that will come out in about four or five years from now. Sometimes when you're you're saying locations, I just think you're making words up because these are places <laughs> I've never, ever heard of. And that is so cool because we live in such a huge world. And the more you travel, the larger it seems to feel because, you know, you can travel so much. You can travel like Art Wolf and there's still places that you haven't been yet. There's a lot of places I've not been. And so, you know, I want to die trying. I And the <laughs> other thing is I once had a uh, 95-year-old book editor by the name of Brand Imar, who worked for Random House. And two things about that is I have a lot of respect for Random House that never retired him. You know, he kept coming to work. And I worked probably on about seven or eight books with the guy. And before we had finished one book, he'd be saying, Art, what's our next project? And I really got it that he was using me to stay alive. And <laughs> so that's been uh, a role model for me to always have book mm -hmm. projects in the works. And if you do, you probably will live a longer life because you can't die in the middle of a project. <laughs> no kidding. That's so true. That's so true. So, you know, we've alluded to the, the fact that you practically live in airplanes. You travel probably more than most humans, more than 99% of humans. One of the questions that I came up in the group for the podcast is that how do you balance family and relationships with the amount of travel and photography that you do. I know I'm speaking from experience here that when you travel and you do lots of photography and travel and you create those photography widows, sometimes things can fall apart back at home. Not everybody is super understanding about that. How do you balance your personal relationships with travel and photography? I think that's a really astute question as well. And the fact is, I'm single and I probably will remain single the rest of my life. Yeah. I, I've got great friends from around the world, but I don't live a life like most people. I don't have cats or dogs, though I love cats and dogs. I just have to make those sacrifices yeah. to gain what I've got. And so nobody's life is complete. Nobody's got a perfect life. I certainly don't. But what I have is a world of friends, close friends, and for me, at this point in my life, that's good enough. And so I'm not making compromises with a spouse. And I probably have never had a spouse because of that very, very reason. Yeah. I, I think I'm too selfish to want to live the life that I've got and see the world as much as I can. And part of that is the knowledge and the, that picture of Earth from the moon or from deep space where we saw that little globe of color out there in that void of black. And I thought to myself, I want to see as much of that earth as possible in my lifetime. So yeah, a traditional lifestyle is not in the cards. Mm -hmm. And I fortunately am supported by a really great staff, much of, uh, many of which have worked for me for uh, more than 25 years. And so it's an extended family that I have here at Art Wolf. 
I recently read a book that kind of talks about how you have to choose your discomforts in life. You have to choose the pains that you can deal with in life. And for some people, the pain of being alone is too great and family and relationships becomes the most important thing to them. And for other people, that the pain of not succeeding or not doing something meaningful with your life is too great and they're willing to make sacrifices in other areas. And anytime you're going to be good at something, there has to be the willingness to sacrifice something else. Yeah, it's absolutely clear. And you see that in Really exceptional people, you know, the top dancers, ballet dancers, you know, they've got aches and pains and Mm -hmm. they're almost driven neurotic by the lifestyle they've chose. I have always looked at what I've got and celebrated what I've got, health and drive and I think intellect. And I don't really dwell too much on what I don't have. When people sit down for a extended Thanksgiving dinner, I I have very few people in my family left. And so I don't have that kind of lifestyle that you see on commercial TV. Yet I'm a very happy person. I fill my life with things that I really love. And so that's the way I've lived basically for my entire life, not just as an adult, but even when I was young, I always had projects. I always had interests that I pursued and uh, was very different in that sense. Yeah. And I think the most important thing that you just said there is that you fill your life with the things that you love. And I think no matter what it is that you love, that is great life advice right there. Fill your life with the things that you love, unless they're like bonbons and cupcakes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, and I've got a lot of friends, as I say, and yet some of those people dwell on the negative. They Mm -hmm. are always moaning about this or that. And it's like, I usually walk away when the conversation gets a little too uh, heavy because, Mm -hmm. you know, negativity breeds negativity. And so I've got to maintain a psychology that equips me with the energy to maintain myself because I, as you pointed out, I do travel more than actually anybody I've ever met. And to have that, you need to be mentally fit and physically fit and emotionally fit to be able to do that. Okay. So getting back to other stuff, what piece of advice do you wish that someone would have given you earlier in your career that they did not? What would today's Art Wolf give 30 years ago, Art Wolf? What, What advice would you give yourself? I would have definitely invested in Starbucks and Microsoft when, <laughs> when instead I invested. And the only time I've ever invested was in a space company that uh, I put all the money that I had at that point into a company. And the very next week, the Challenger blew up and the entire endeavor oh, went south. Yeah, that was a big ouch. Uh, but and that's I know not where you were heading with that question, but <laughs> I guess the, yeah. the lesson there is to stick with what you know. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly right. But uh, no, you know, I, I I never look backwards with regret. And so there's nothing that sticks in my mind that I wish I could have done this differently or that. I I'm all about what's happening tomorrow rather than what happened last week. Mm-hmm. And so I, I don't look back with regret about anything I've done. It's not to say I've had a perfect life and I haven't made major mistakes, but they become fuzzy in my mind. I can't pull them out of that uh, 
archive in my brain. Okay. Well, how about to rephrase the question? What piece of advice would you give somebody that's young in their career today? Somebody who's just starting. And it's cliche, but follow your dreams. In other words, you want to be a photographer. If you want to be an artist, if you want to be a dancer, a cook, a rocket scientist, try, try your best at doing that. If it doesn't succeed, then regroup and find something else. But if you allow other people to say, well, no, you can't do that because of this or that or the other thing, then you'll always regret that you never put the effort in. Mm -hmm. And so I'm one, I'm a person of encouragement. I've always encouraged the students that take my courses. Uh, I'm about uplifting and educating and inspiring. And I try to convey that on to my students. And along those lines, I always say, okay, if you want to be a photographer, go for it. Try it. It's a different world than when I first started out. But and there's uh, many disadvantages to you today. But there's also many advantages. Mm -hmm. You know, the Internet is uh, conceivably be your biggest gallery. If you put time and effort into a, a great website, you can draw and drive people to your website as long as you learn about social media. Th those are the things that I, I sing. I find more reasons to encourage people than to discourage people. Yeah, we are in a really interesting time because technology is getting better. Our work is more visible than ever. But because of that, there's a lot of competition out there as well. Like you said, there's pros and cons for sure. So what, what's next for Art Wolf? You said you, you got a trip coming up soon. Do you have stuff planned out beyond that as well? Oh, yeah. I've got, uh, basically, I <laughs> having spoken about having the mental, physical uh, energy, I actually am going to be put down for about two and a half, three months. I have a foot operation mm. in December, which uh, then I'm, I'm going to spend a lot of time reviewing portfolio. So if people are interested in having me critique their work, they cool. should come to Art Wolf uh, and sign up. I'm working on six books right now. One's on elephants. One's called Wild, which looks at world wildlife in a new way. Uh, one's called Act of Faith that looks at all the world's religions, but also uh, shamanism and voodoo and all the crazy things people believe in. Yeah. Uh, one book is called uh, Zen, the Art of the Abstract. That title might change, but right now it's a working title. I've got a book coming out next year on trees which sounds like a boring subject but in fact it will be very beautiful and very eloquent there is talk about reviving travels the edge and oh, nice. a film film crew came in from new york and la just before i went off to africa and filmed kind of a promo for that we'll see what happens if it goes i'm delighted if it doesn't you know i'll move on with other projects there is a lot of things cooking that's I'm a, I'm enthusiastic about the future. That is so cool. It sounds like you're going to need some of that downtime to deal with <laughs> six books. I imagine there's some desk time involved there. I'm sure you'll find the time to work on some of that. I've got a, a great supportive crew here, and uh, I could not do this alone. Awesome. Uh, the social media, the website, uh, people taking care of me and making sure I'm doing all the things I should. It takes a team. I'm really happy with that fact. Well, Art, thank you so much for taking the time to come on my show. And it's so cool to get to talk to you and catch up with what you've been doing. So thanks so much. Well, we're kindred spirits. So it's always great talking with you, Nick. 
Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much. Make sure you subscribe to the show and we'll see you again next week. Bye-bye.